First of all, let me say that I found both of your presentations to be very thought-provoking. Uh, I enjoyed them, and I largely agree. Mm -hmm. uh, there are a few areas, however, that I see as potential problems uh, that I think we will probably have agreement about, but I would like to explore a little bit further. Uh, I apologize to the audience because I have an advantage that you don't have. <laughs> I've had Dr. Baer's paper for several weeks now and I've had the opportunity to look at it very, very closely. And uh, many of the things that I have comments about weren't actually shared in the oral presentation tonight. Uh, but hopefully you'll be able to track with us in this discussion nonetheless. Uh, the paper that I received focused on the Gospel of John in particular as apocalyptic. And what I understand from your oral presentation tonight is that you essentially mean by that that to properly understand the Old Testament uh, and I assume the Gospel of John as well, that there must be a revelation, an apocalypse from the Holy Spirit. Yeah, would that be a good summary of yeah. Especially for the Gospel of John. Um, it's funny with the word apocalypse, isn't it? Because we, when it's used, and it's used extensively in the New Testament, we almost invariably translate it as revelation. Yeah? And yet we use the word apocalypse for other things, which we now have a whole fantasy about, you know, end of world scenarios and this, that, and the other. Yeah? Um, but, so we no longer hear it as it was originally being used and we've now come to hear the word revelation instead, which has got its own background. Um, and so apocalypse just stays on one level of our mind when in fact it's got much, much richer. And the, ma the main idea of apocalypse is simply drawing back the veil. Yeah, you know, it's, it's revealing in, in that sense, You're drawing, drawing back the veil, uh, lifting the veil, um, opening the book in that way, yeah? Um, so it's, a, it's, a, it's apocalyptic in the sense of unveiling the mystery that was hidden from all eternity, to use the kind of Pauline language or Ephesians language. And in the Gospel of John, that is directly and intimately connected with the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. Yeah? You know, um, th I have many more things to tell you, but you cannot yet bear them. When I've departed, then I'll send one who will be able to lead you into all truth about myself and so on. Yeah, absolutely. Which is also why from the beginning, uh, th that way of reading scripture is always termed a spiritual reading of scripture. Yeah. Well, early on in your paper, you mentioned four different categories of apocalyptic. Yeah. Apocalyptic genre, uh, yeah. apocalyptic as a social movement. Apocalypticism. Apoc yeah. uh, uh, as eschatology. And, as and then apocalyptic as language. Yeah. And you said that you saw John as apocalypse primarily in terms of language, but also in its complex of themes. Yeah, I was drawing upon John Ashton for that, yeah, in the kind of work that he's been doing on the Gospel of John, which I find really stimulating. Yeah. yeah. What I struggled with is, if we're talking both about language and a complex of themes, aren't we actually talking about apocalypse as a genre? Yeah, apart from the fact that there are also a self-designated genre entitling themselves apocalypse. Apocalypse okay. of right. uh, Abraham, uh, you know, any number of apocalypses from that period. Right. Yeah, so, so, so there, there's a self-designated genre like that, yeah? Okay. Yeah. So the point of distinction is that you don't intend to associate John with those self-described uh, well, the, the point that I was trying to get across was that the way that John Ashton, building upon work by Christopher Rowland and a bunch of other people, um, come up with a much richer notion of apocalypse than simply apocalyptic end times, eschatological type stuff, yeah? And that John is in many ways playing with them, turning it upside down and inside out. Yeah, so rather than a, a seer going up to heaven and then coming back and telling us what he's seen, we've got somebody from heaven coming down to earth telling us what to see. Right. You know, or being the object of sight, or being the object of the revelation. The, the one who has seen himself in, yeah. this, in, in the uh, text, in the gospel. Yeah. yeah. 
I, I will confess that I struggled with Ashton's definition when he described John as apocalyptic, in reverse, upside, upside down, down, inside back to out. Front, yeah. I, I thought, wow, that sounds like he's saying uh, John is just like an apocalypse, except it's entirely different. <laughs> uh, that, that it's almost the antithesis of apocalyptic, if you will. Yeah, but in some ways he says it directly. You know, his ascent into heaven is his ascent on the cross. Yeah? It's by ascending the cross that he unites heaven and earth. It's by ascending the cross that he unites the beginning and the end. Yeah? So there are plays being made upon those kind of things. Yeah, and so he concludes he wouldn't actually call John an apocalypse. Um, but what's fascinating for me is this idea of unveiling, opening up, because that's what I've been finding so much in my reading of those the early figures like Irenaeus and so on. But didn't Ashton say that John actually conceived of his gospel as an apocalypse? I don't know. Uh, and that's where I struggled. I could yeah. understand how an apocalypse might be a paradigm that a modern scholar would find convenient for describing some of the tendencies of the gospel of John. But when he said John conceived of his gospel as an apocalypse, yeah. after his earlier definition... Yeah. Uh, in, the, in his most recent book on the Gospel of John and Christian origins, he actually takes even that back. Yeah, so he, he's backtracking. Okay. Uh, that's not really the issue. The issue is, this, is what is going on in that at all of help in trying to understand the genesis of um, theological language. Do you, do you think that it's sufficient? And, and so it, it seems that that's exactly what we have from Paul onwards. Yeah, you know, the, the last passage in Romans, for instance, about the, the, uh, the apocalypse through the scriptures, you know, being made known in that way. A whole load of different things. Right. Well, one of, one of the things that I'm struggling with uh, is I concur that there are elements of the gospel that we might describe as cryptic in the... Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures, but not the entirety of the gospel. Uh, but, but, the, but the point is, that it's not the gospel that's cryptic, it's the scriptures that are cryptic. Yeah? The scriptures are the, the, the cryptic body that needs to be opened up, and they're opened up by the passion resulting in the clear word of the gospel. Or am I missing something? Uh, no, I thought your paper actually said that the gospel itself was the mystery, uh, which was hidden. Oh, sure. Uh, okay, and yeah. that's why... Oh, yeah, I, but it's hidden in the scriptures. Yeah. Right. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, when you trace the use of the word mysterion through the epistle of Romans, Paul only uses it one other time, yeah. and it's in Romans 11, in which he's describing the mystery in which uh, God has hardened Israel... Yeah. so that the fullness of the Gentiles can come yeah. in. Yeah. And so when I read Romans 16, I don't see Paul uh, referring to the entirety of the gospel as a mystery hidden in the Old Testament, but certain aspects of it. It seems to me that as he progresses through Romans, he sees certain things as abundantly clear, like justification by faith, mm -hmm. for example. Yeah. So, so we're talking about aspects of the gospel being hidden. Yeah, apart from, would he have said justification by faith before he encountered Christ on the road to Damascus? No. Well, then it's hidden. <laughs> Even that's hidden. You know, however clear that might be, that was hidden prior to that encounter. Yeah? And now it might look, you might go back to the scripture and say, now it's clear, but it wasn't to him beforehand. Right. So something happened. Yeah. Yeah? But my, my question is, was it unclear to him because it was a mystery concealed that later had to be revealed? Or was he unconscious of it because of the blindness of his eyes, the deafness of his ears, the it hardness comes, of comes, his It comes to the same, heart. no? It comes to the same. Uh, nobody was reading it that way until after the event. But there was some messianic interpretation of the Old Testament. Before. All, all sorts of all sorts of messianic interpretations, but not this one. <laughs> not this <Okay>. one. <laughs> all right. 
Yeah. So we are I mean, yeah, the, 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 the people in the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Quran community, they all sort of spoke about their teacher of righteousness. Right. Yeah. In, in other words, the, the four characteristics of scripture that I pointed out, they are in fact from Kugel, yeah, as, a, as, a, as a Jewish scholar. You know, these are simply characters of reading scripture. It's opened up by the one who, uh, of whom they speak. Yeah? Uh, the the, the Quranic community had, had the teacher of righteousness, whoever that might have been. But the, 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 the methodology as such was exactly the same. Yeah. So, so the question. So, sorry. The, the question. Which, which Messiah are you talking about? We'll say the one is to, the the one in whom God is revealed as spoken by the prophets. No doubt about it. So, in, in terms of uh, in terms of this particular interpretation of Christ, by means of the Old Testament, the, the suggestion uh, is the suggestion then that by reading uh, the the Tanakh outside of absent this event of uh, the passion, crucifixion, resurrection, exaltation, all thought as one. Um, right, your example, the, the, the white light which passes through the prism, so all these yeah. events are found in yeah. one, that the, uh, that message of that particular Christ is, um, the message is, the, is what is hidden, yeah. so would not be seen in these Old Testament texts that Jesus is that Christ, or yes. that this Christ would be crucified and risen. You, you understand that? What's the distinction you're trying to make? Yeah, so the distinction is, and, and I think I'm trying to get it, uh, I, I think what uh, Chuck is getting at as well, that uh, outside of Jesus, death and resurrection and exaltation, could the scriptures have been read as though there were a death, resurrection, and exaltation of this Messianic king or was it, is that the component that's hidden, or is it that Jesus is that figure? I'm not very good with hypothetical questions. Yeah. Right. <laughs> in could, 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 could they have been read no, no, that no, no, way? No, no, no. Internally, in the in the text yeah. of the uh, of the Tanakh, is there an expectation of a? crucified and risen son, crucified and risen Lord, that would be exalted. And the answer to that would, would be yes, that, that it is here in that. And we see this because we see Jesus yes. as the crucified and risen one. Right. Okay. Right. But if you were to ask a Jew, would they find a crucified and risen Christ in the Tanakh? They right. would say no. That's right. And they would say, you're, okay. you're making it up. Mm -hmm. yeah? And so, so hidden in that sense. Not that, it, not, not that it's, not, it's not there and present. It's not seen until there is this apocalypse, until the eyes right. are open, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the book is open, the right. veil is open, exactly that, okay. yeah. So, so, so uh, Moses is writing about me in the immediate, in the present. So, so in this apocalypse, we are talking then about the unveiling of a meaning already present in the Old Testament, not the imposition of new meaning upon it, well, who are you asking that of? If you're asking it of me, of course I'd say we're not imposing new meaning upon okay. it. But if you'd ask it of a Jew, they'd say you're, you're nuts. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know how to answer that beyond that. You know, every reading has a hermeneutical starting point. Yeah? Uh, did Paul find it clearly there in the scriptures before he encountered Christ on the road to Damascus? You know, as a first century Jew who knew the literature inside out, backwards and forwards, and all the different rabbinic or proto rabbinic interpretations of it, did he read it that way? No. Right. Yeah. Um, when he starts reading it that way, what's changed? Well, the text? You, you say the cross. I would say the Damascus Road. Well, but, 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 yeah. Uh, uh, his starting point has changed, yeah? yeah? If it's a Damascus Road, it's a Damascus Road of. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Yeah, it, it, you know, the, the, again, the, the victim, the crucified one. Yeah, um, his starting point. The text hasn't changed. That's the point I was getting to. The text hasn't changed at all. His starting point has changed, and that means that what he's actually doing in reading scripture has changed. Yeah, James Barr makes this a, a really important point in his book on the Garden of Eden, the hope of immortality. He says that Paul's reading of Genesis is, is simply wrong. <laughs> But what Paul is doing is not reading Genesis, he's using Genesis to read Christ. Very different task. 
Yeah. So, so in terms of kind of <laughs> they're very different tasks. Moses wrote of me. You're using this material to understand your starting point. Damascus wrote. You're not reading it in abstract as if you were reading it before that starting point. Right. Yeah. It, it becomes the searchlight from. Yeah. Uh, it or it becomes the material, the fabric by which you're understanding this. So what, Chuck, what, what, um, so what would your position be as a biblical scholar? I mean, this is, this is why it's so valuable to have you a, a part of tonight, because you, you spend all of your time reading these Gospels, reading these texts. What are the things that um, might would... You would, distinguish, you would distinguish yourself from maybe these readings or some distinctions that you would make uh, or maybe just ways you would say things differently? What would your approach be that um, would, that, so that, that we can put them in a, kind of, kind of put them in a mix here and see how you would go about okay. as a biblical studies scholar um, reading these texts? Thanks. Well, one example of a difference would be that I am very comfortable describing the Gospels as biographical. Uh, I understand that we can't treat them as merely biographical. I agree with you that there is huge theological emphasis. And if we read them as mere history and not also theology, we would have a uh, diminished view of Christ and an impoverished view of the Gospels. But I'm also concerned that we not gravitate to the other extreme and emphasize theology to the neglect of history. Uh, when Luke, for example, describes in his second volume what he was doing in his first volume, he says in the first volume, I wrote about all the things that Jesus began to do and to say, which sounds pretty biographical mm -hmm. to me. They're about the actual words of Jesus and about the actual deeds of Jesus. And uh, I'm with you in emphasizing the theological intentions of the evangelist, but I don't want to divorce that from Jesus himself, who in his incarnate life uh, walked the sands of the Sea of Galilee and actually preached a sermon on the mountain and so forth. And at times, I hear... Uh, history being abandoned in the theological emphasis and that alarms me. Mm -hmm. I think it matters whether Jesus actually said and did these things or if this is just the theological imagination of the evangelist. Yeah. And I'm not accusing either of yeah. you of right. suggesting right. that it is but that's a dangerous that I think yeah. a danger that I think I, I, I think for me I, and, I'm, and, and I'm with you uh, I think that's a danger as well I think for me it's not the difference between did these things really happen or did they not really happen. Yeah. But in the recounting of the things that really happened, why um, does the author pick these stories, for example, to tell us that he said and did this, that he walked here, that he walked there? Because as John says, there's so many other things that Jesus said that, we don't, that, that I'm not going to tell you about because these are the ones that are important to accomplish the purpose, the purpose for you to see that Jesus is the Christ. So just like in um, you know, Numbers 23 and 24, the Israel coming up out of Egypt, that, this, was, this was God uh, promising for their future something which he is drawing on from their past. So these things, for me, are certainly historical events that are being recounted and recounted as they were and as they happened. But there's a reason why they're being told, and that's a th the theological purpose. So why tell this story you know, of Jesus feeding the 5,000 as opposed to the other story of uh, you know, Jesus walking to this, uh, the, you know, the temple on a certain day, which he doesn't tell. And so the, the choice of what stories these are and how they're framed and, and related to one another would be the, the theological purpose of the authors. I think how I would want to see that. Not that they aren't history but that they're not chosen just so we'll get an account of what, what went on and, um, and, and learn what happened in the first century. We'll learn why those things happened, that there's an interpretive nature to which ones I'm bringing in to show that Jesus is the Christ. Unlike the Gnostic Gospels, all of which uh, you know, record what may, may as well be accounts from things that Jesus said and did that may very well be his, history or historical and historically accurate, but the interpretations 
that they give, the Jesus that they establish for us isn't the Christ of the, of the Old Testament. I think it's how I would want to respond. So I wouldn't want to separate it from the Jesus who really walked on the, on the sands uh, either, not, not at all. Just the opposite, that, that this is the pinpoint of God's, uh, of God's work to redeem real human beings. So it, it, it's not just a, uh, you know, a, a story that may or may not have happened, and these are just mythological characters, because we're, he's really redeeming true human beings, um, forgiving us of our sins and bringing us into the promised land again. So I'm not sure how... Uh, yeah, um, I'm really thankful for the way that uh, a lot of New Testament scholarship is recovering a whole load of things which it hadn't done in the mid twentieth uh, century. I think of people, especially like Richard Hayes's new book on reading backwards. You know, it's a fantastic book in what he does with that. Um, J. Louis Martin would be another one. John Marcus again, you know, showing the, the intertextuality of gospel and scripture in, in really, really profound ways. The you know, one of the most thorny questions really is a question of history in all of this. And what we today mean by history, what the ancients meant by history, what's going on with the biography and all these kind of things. In my presentation, I like, you know, I try to be provocative, I like being provocative, but I was provocative by taking everything as it happened. Yeah, it, you know, I didn't, the, the basis for what I said was this is what actually happened. And the point I'd got from it is that the disciples didn't get it from what happened. Yeah? And that, that for me is the most fascinating thing, that they preserve that in it. Um, that there is a difference between history and theology. Theology doesn't deny history or abandon it, but neither is theology reduced to history. Yeah? Okay. You know, that, and that's a point which I think you made. You know, if you had had a video camera at the event, what could you have taken a video of? Jesus being nailed to the cross, you know, disciples running in fear. Yeah. The disciples themselves tell us that when they saw the risen Christ, they didn't even recognize him. You know, I take it purely as history, it only takes you so far. The question is, the interpretation of what's being done in that history is the key thing. And that's clearly, I think, with, with the canonical Gospels, um, an interpretation which is done through the Scriptures. Yeah? And that's made abundantly clear throughout the, throughout the Gospels. In, for instance, um, the entry into Jerusalem in the Gospel of John. It says, quote, quoting the passage from Zechariah, and then it says, the disciples didn't know why he did this. Um, but after he was glorified, then they remembered that it had been written about him. So then they remembered, oh yeah, that's what he really did. He sat backwards rather than forwards or, or whatever it might be. Then they remembered that it had been written about him. So it's a scriptural remembering. Yeah? Um, and that'd be where I would take, take Richard Baucom to task, I think, in his book, uh, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. You know, he does so much on eyewitness memory and the reconstruction of eyewitness memory and all the rest of it. But it's not just eyewitness memory and reliability of eyewitness memory. It is a framework within which you're interpreting what happened. Yeah? And it seems to me that a, a theologian is committed presumably any Christian's committed to interpreting what happened on the basis of the passion and the opening of the scriptures. I mean, <laughs> it seems to be just, just a blindingly obvious given, yeah? And it seems to be um, a, a more historical way of doing it, because in fact, that's what you've already got with Paul before the Gospels are written. Yeah, you know, before the Gospels are written, this is what's being done. So historically, it, it's a more adequate way of reaching the Gospels, yeah? Um, and then if, if your concern, hesitation, fear, and I, I, I realize you, you say we, we don't do this, but the, the hesitation that, that it could be done is you know, the abandonment of history, for purely theological reading. My hesitation, I think, would be uh, maybe the reverse of that, and that would be to try and get back to the real history prior to the cross, yeah? Which is what most books on the real historical Jesus do. Right. Yeah? You know, what, what, was he kind of a, a rabbinic Jew? Was he a, a, a revolutionary? Was he this, that, and the other? Every year, there's a new real historical Jesus in Barnes and Noble. Yeah? <laughs> I mean, there's no doubt about it. Um, and that's because nobody is really clear about what their criterion for real historical is. Yeah, what's the criterion for historicity? What's the criterion by which history works?
history is a proper discipline, has to be done. I'm a, I'm a historian more than anything else. I spend my time in the second century. Yeah? But, but history is the interpretation of the past as it remains in the present. Yeah? And what a lot of people want to do is to interpret the past with as if the cross hadn't happened. Yeah? What did he really say to his mother in Cana? What did he really do in this, that, and the other? You're trying to get to the past as if the cross never happened. Yeah? And find the, the revelation of God in that, apart from the cross. Yeah? That seems to me what, what, what a lot of people are trying to do. I'm not saying you're doing it, obviously I'm not saying that. Um, but that seems to be, we, we moderns have got a kind of a knee-jerk reaction to try and hold on to the reality of that history prior to the cross, independently of the cross, in those ways. Now, if that's the case, and, you, and we're trying to locate the revelation of God in that, as history, independently of the cross, then we probably deserve the rebuke that was given to, to Peter. Sure. Yeah, my concern is that we not recreate that dichotomy between the Jesus of history and Christ mm -hmm. of faith that dominated... Oh, endless uh, numbers of... Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. And uh, although I have great appreciation for uh, Richard Hayes' uh, Reading Backwards book and agree with much of what he says, I see that tendency in his work at times in which statements that the Gospels assigned to the Lord Jesus himself are now ascribed to the theological genius of the evangelist and that sometimes he bluntly says this can't be traced back to Jesus himself. Uh, I don't think we have to do either or. I think that it can be both and. Apart from, yeah, again, I agree with you, but it is worthwhile remembering that from the beginning we've, we've been committed to a fourfold gospel. We've got, you know, Matthew's version, Mark's version, Luke's version, John's version. We've, the, the, the Christian church has always resisted the temptation to try and reduce it to one harmonious account. And then say, you know, this is from the Lord, no, this is what really happened. We, 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 we've always maintained the integrity of the personal witness too, as different as they might be. Yeah? Because the, 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 the kernel is the revelation of God in Christ as understood through the, through the opening of the scriptures which Mark bears witness to, Matthew bears witness to, Luke bears witness to, and they pick out different themes and so on and so on. So the, the Christ they present is different. John's Christ is different to that of the synoptics in really interesting ways. Not as a different Christ talking about a different one, but he's taking this reflection. It's, it's not they're, they're not just writing biography, which we then have to square. They're, they're writing a reflection on on. Uh, this eternal figure. Yeah? Uh, one of the things that's kind of interesting is the, the, the dichotomy between the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith is really a modern one. I can't think of anything parallel to that in antiquity. Right, I agree. It's, which is, so it's kind of trying to get back into how did they hold that together and maybe that needs to break down some of our modern presuppositions and dichotomies. I think some of That's the fear that, that some people have about, biblical scholars have about theologians is that, um, you know, the theologian may present Abraham Lincoln as the vampire slayer, you know. Uh, that it's this, this newly invented figure. But, I, you yeah. know, I think the reality, it, it's, for me, uh, as, as someone who loves cinema, it's, it's more like Batman, in the sense that there are all these different presentations of Batman, and, and each one is a different interpretation. Who was, is he good, is he bad, is he... And that, in reality, the, what the apostles present to us is the right one. Yeah. Um, it is the one who did walk uh, the sands yeah. and who did live yeah. and die and was raised from the dead and exalted. And there are many more things one can say about And him. there are many, many yeah. more things. Yeah. But that the scriptures give to us this description of him because both the scriptures and the gospels are writing of the same subject. Yeah. To back to Cyril of Alexandria, yeah. writing there's there's one single subject who yeah. is being spoken of in both the, the Old Testament as Christ, the New Testament as our one Lord and Savior, Jesus yeah. Christ. And so because they're both writing about the same end times, the same messianic figure, the same priestly king, the same son of God, son of man, etc., then the the description that you have in the Old Testament of Christ and the description you have in Jesus, uh, they, they are of the same 
the same figure, these other descriptions that may draw on historical accounts from things yeah. that may have Gospel or may not Thomas, have happened. Whatever, Gospel yeah. of Thomas, Peter, Gospel of Peter, Gospel of Peter, Paul, and Mary, whomever, that yeah. those, all of those descriptions are present to you a different yeah. Christ, present to us. They interpret him differently, yeah. not according to the scriptures. Even if the, the events they describe really happened, they're interpreted wrongly. Whereas here, these events are interpreted in the, in the light of the Old Testament. Yeah. So a, you avoid the vampire yeah. slayer. Uh, yeah. You know, Jesus the vampire slayer, and you get Jesus the crucified and risen. And it's the Lord. apostolic Christ that we believe in. And the absolute Christ is, as Paul says, crucified and risen in accordance with Scripture. That's what I've handed down to you. And that's what's fleshed out in the canonical Gospels. All right. Well, with the vampire slate quote, we've, <laughs> we've got a transition. Uh, let's thank our, our panelists. And now is the opportunity for you to join the fray, so to speak. So if you have a question, please do uh, raise your hand, and I'll come to you as quick as I can. Please do identify yourself, and uh, if you or where you come from would be, would be good in the back. Uh, Tracy McKenzie here at Southeastern. Appreciate the presentation, and Father Bear, appreciate your emphasis and presence here among us tonight, so thank you so much. I'd like to direct the question first to you and then others can respond, and uh, the question has to do with uh, the, the, um, uh, the revealing, uh, the cryptic nature of, of uh, the situation, the gospel, uh, Christ, and I want to know uh, what you would say about uh, Simeon and Anna who were uh, waiting for a particular restoration or redemption. It seems like Luke is using several things here at the end of Luke 2 uh, in the words of the Old Testament to wait for this particular figure who would come. Oh, sure. Uh, this would be really... Yeah. Uh, there seems to be some kind of confusion with regard to various things because I, I spoke about the cryptic nature of Scripture, mm -hmm. yeah? But I'm talking about Old Testament. Yeah, you know, I call it scripture because that's how the New Testament calls it. Yeah? It's cryptic, it's a book which is closed, it's got a veil lifting over it, and it's revealed. The, the Gospels are clear preaching. No doubt about it, the Gospels are clear preaching in which this book, now with the veil lifted off it, um, open and so on, is now being, is giving the language, giving the imagery, giving the background, giving all the different things one can say about it for this clear proclamation of Christ in the Gospel. Okay? Now, in that clear proclamation, it is really intriguing that the disciples do not understand. There are plenty of other people who understand. I, said, I mentioned the demoniacs. They understand. The outsiders, they understand. The Roman centurion. I mean, all, all these different other... The disciples don't. The ones who were with him and followed him and thought they were getting it don't, yeah? Because... And they maintain the fact that they don't. Yeah, it could have been so easy to rewrite that history, but they didn't. They kept it like that, even if it cast them in a bad light, because of the, the importance of the point of the transition of um, uh, effected through the passion. Okay? It changed all their categories, turned it upside down, opened a book and all the rest of it. Now, in that proclamation, in that writing, biographical writing in that way, it is all now illumined by that event. Yeah? And so we see that from the beginning on. But uh, this is where it is, yes, it's biography, but it's not merely biography because the way that it is told is already shaped by the end, from the beginning. Yeah? Um, so you mentioned uh, Simeon and Anna, the prophetess, yeah? the presentation in the temple. But you go right, right back to the very beginning of the birth with that. You know, gold, frankincense, and myrrh for dead divine lord. Um, the, the, the connection between the tomb and the womb. Yeah? Joseph and, uh, and uh, the, Joseph Arimathea with the tomb in which no man had been laid. You're now using the same kind of imagery to describe his beginning, Joseph in a virgin womb. And the, those, those connections are made repeatedly by the first readers of Scripture. So I see, I see that point, and I see you're, you know, you're exactly right. I guess my question would be that uh, Simeon and Anna and these others that you've mentioned are prior to the event. I understand. Uh, well, and, so your point exactly that it's the, in the gospel portrayal, 
They're yeah. revealing this. Yeah. So my question, my follow-up question would have been, isn't the point more the presence and revealing nature of God, whether it's the Spirit, the Son, or the Father that reveals the thing, rather than the passion week, if you will, of Christ? Yeah, maybe I'm more of a historian than other people are, because I read these as historical documents, which means as documents that are written 20, 30 years after the event, yeah, and are written in that context. Whereas what we want to do is to read them merely as history of what happened before. Well, there's a huge hermeneutical problem in that. I think I'm being more historical. Could I follow up with, with a yeah. question? So, when John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the yeah. world, when he says that the one coming after him is mightier than he is, yeah. and baptized with the Spirit and fire, his winnowing shovels in his hand, and so forth, is that imposed on the lips of John the Baptist by the evangelist, or did he actually say it prior to the Passion? I've got no idea. All I know is that the evangelist John depicts the Baptist saying that. That's what, I don't know how one could say any more than that. And, and if John claims to be recording reminiscences and not see, merely see, see, theological what, what, reflections... What, 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 what we want to do is to get away from the text into a reconstructed history of our own imagination. I'm sticking with the text. But the, the epilogue of the text does say oh, that sure. the author's an eyewitness. Oh, uh, so. yeah, no, no doubt about it, but, but I'm sticking with the text. What we want to do is get behind the text to the event which the text purportedly re 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 um, reports. Yeah? 30, 40 years, 70 years earlier, whatever it might be. 100 years earlier, maybe in the Gospel of John. Who knows? Yeah? Um, and then locate the revelation in the event behind the text. I'm saying, no, the revelation's occurring in the text, because this text is already being written as an interpretative, ap an, auth an authoritative, apostolic interpretation of this event. You can't separate it. You literally cannot separate it. Yes. Well, I, I think what I would add to that, from my perspective, I think I would add to that that the the to answer your question, the for me, the writer. John, in, in each of these instances, is not inventing things that were said, is not um, claiming something that is inaccurate as a claim, um, and that the reason he puts that which John the Baptist said, which I, I don't have a problem with saying this was on the lips of John the Baptist, but the reason he puts it there where he does is because of what he's doing in the in the text. I think it's perhaps how I would distinguish what I'm saying is that though you know John the Baptist because it's recounted in the text he says this. This is what as an inerrantist I would uh, certainly subscribe to and that so he's he's saying this and when John records this he's recording that giving it to us what he actually said for a reason and the reason is not just for us to know that he said that but to hear this proclamation and to embrace it. Can I, can I take it at one further? I think we're at the, really at the heart of a most huge, serious issue in all of this. What we want to do in modernity is to place the revelation of God in history independently of anything else. Yeah? What I'm suggesting is that in the early church, the revelation of God occurs in history through the apostolic scriptural interpretation of what happened. But yeah. that's the key, of oh, what I, happened. Of what, no, no, there's no I've, I've never said anything against it. But this is an apostolic scriptural interpretation of who this one dead on the cross is. Yeah? It's not the way that Pilate would have seen that event. It's not the way that any number of other people would have seen that event. It's the way that the apostles, on the basis of their encounter with the risen Christ, but not simply that, because when they've encountered him, they didn't recognize him through the opening of the scriptures. It's this apostolic scriptural interpretation of what happened, which is where revelation occurs. Okay? 
And so whatever memories they had of what his mother said, of what they heard about John saying, about whatever, whatever, all of these things, none of which I would ever deny, is all reconfigured scripturally in the light of the Passion. Is given scriptural language. Yeah? And the Gospels tell you that they're doing that. Yeah? They didn't remember, they didn't understand what he was doing, but afterwards they remembered it had been written of him. Right. Okay, so, so it's, it's this apostolic scriptural interpretation of what happened that is where the revelation goes. What we want to do is to separate out what really happened and say the revelation is in what really happened independently of any interpretation, but that places it into a modernist historical narrative, right. which is deeply problematic. I, I agree with that. Deeply, deeply yes. problematic, but, but because there is no <laughs> presuppositionless narrative of history. Mm, right. And you said what I was waiting for you to say. Well, it, but, but, but if all that you want me to say is that I don't, I don't um, uh, deny anything of the actual this. If by that the takeaway from that is, well, it still really happened historically and the revelation happened historically independent of the apostolic interpretation, you've missed a point. Sure, I, I'm fine with that. Uh, what I want to make sure is that we don't abandon history when Luke in his prologue makes it clear that he was interviewing eyewitnesses, the fourth gospel claims to be written by an eyewitness, the uh, replacement for the twelve had to have been well, an sure. eyewitness of everything that Jesus no, did. That, no doubt about it. Right. But we're still also in a situation where we are now at a disadvantage because we think our primary material for understanding Christ is the New Testament. It's not. It's not. It's the scriptures. Yeah? We've become so accustomed to a book called the New Testament. We want to know about Jesus, go read about his life. No, if you want to know about Jesus, you start with the Passion and you go to the Scriptures. That's where Paul starts. That's what's going on for decades before the Gospels are written. And that's what Christians still continue to do even after the Gospels were written. Decades, centuries after the Gospels were written. So even by the time you get to the 4th century and you start talking about the Nicene Creed, where it says Christ died and rose in accordance with Scripture, they don't mean Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. They mean the Scriptures. And in fact, the first people to start talking about um, understanding Christ primarily from the writings of the Gospels were Diodor of Tarsus and Theodore of Mopsuestia. Yeah? And they separated it out as two different narratives. You've got the narrative of the Old Testament, and you've got the narrative of the New Testament. If you want to understand about Jesus, you turn to this, and you end up with a, with a bipartite scripture, and you end up with a dual-subject Christology. Deeply problematic. All right. So, other questions? Behind you. Uh, Dr. Bear, I just want to thank you for coming. My name is Greg Lamb. I'm a New Testament PhD student here. I want to maybe switch gears a little bit and talk about uh, what it means, you know, true humanity. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, you had <coughs> mentioned, uh, you know, the, the true humanity uh, was, was being martyred, you know. And, and yeah. I think of Philippians 121. And so my question would be two-pronged. Do you think that when Paul says in Philippians 121 that to live is Christ, to die is Kyrdos, gain, do you think that that is what he is envisioning, something similar? And then the second um, aspect of my question would be, what about the church today? You know, death, suffering is, is a four-letter word in our culture. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And, and, and so what <laughs> advice would you give us pastors here, practical advice for teaching our congregants yeah. to have a biblical theology of suffering, of Christian, yeah, yeah. you know, an art of living, ars vivendi, ars moriendi? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. Thank you for, bo for both of those. Um, yeah, it, 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 from, from the work I've done in the early church and the scripture and so on, it really does seem to me that to be a human being is to live not for yourself, but to take up the cross, die to yourself, live for your neighbor, for Christ, for the gospel, and all the different ways one can flesh that out. Yeah? Um, but the ironic thing is, and this is perhaps why uh, you can't create a creature who's already doing that. Otherwise, it wouldn't be voluntary self-sacrifice, yeah? You can create a creature who enters into that, yeah? Um, so we are the ones who have to say, let it be, 
Yeah? Everything else God says, let it be. He says, let us make a human being. For the only work that is God's own work of making a human being, we are the ones who've got to say, let it be, by voluntarily taking up our cross, dying to ourselves, moving from Adam to Christ, and all the other things one could say about that. Yeah? Um, and that's what I think is understood by a human being in antiquity, in those early centuries. Christ shows us what it is to be God in the way he dies as a human being, but simultaneously shows us what it is to be a human being. Okay? We come into this world mortal. Yeah? We've got a breath of life. It's transitory. Christ says very clearly in the Gospel, if you, if you try and preserve your life, guess what? You'll die. Yeah? But if you use your life, if, if, you, if you lay down your life, you will live. If you use your breath of life, even now, not to live for yourself, but to live for your neighbor, the life you already begin to live cannot be touched by death because you've entered into it through death. Yeah? Um, so you've got all of that kind of thematic going on. But your, as your second part of your question, and so I think Paul is absolutely right. Um, even, and one could take it one, one, kind of one step further, but, uh, when I speak like this, people often, often say, well, you know, the church has also said you shouldn't seek out martyrdom. Okay? And indeed, right, you should not seek out martyrdom. Ignatius was arrested, taken for martyrdom, and so on. But the interesting point is what the language that Paul uses. Yes, of course it would be far better to depart and be with Christ, but for your sake... I remain, yeah? So it would be selfish, actually, to kind of seek out martyrdom. The whole point is that life should be one of ministry service to others, not for your own sake. Okay? So that's how I, I deal with that. But the question of, of death today is, I think, probably the most important question altogether. We've got the question about what theology is, uh, apocalyptic opening of scripture, the coherence of the discourse of theology, how it fits with history, modernity, and a whole bunch of other things. But part of that context is also the question of death. Because I think we have unwittingly, over the last half century or so, undergone the most profound change ever in human existence. Okay? And I think that's what you're onto. Just think about it. Until the early part of the 20th century, everybody would have had one of their siblings die in childhood. Yeah? Everybody would have had one of their parents die before they reached adulthood. You would have had their bodies at home for two, three days, washing it, preparing it, reading, keeping prayers over it, having friends and neighbors around, keeping vigil, and all that kind of thing, taking the body to church, entrust, entrust them to God, inter them in the earth. And you would have seen that probably every month, if not more frequently, in terms of a small village, town, neighbors, friends, family, and so on. Today, when somebody dies, the body is taken away as soon as possible from the family, or the family is separated as soon as possible. It's really bizarre. I was talking with an undertaker recently who said that um, he just had a... <laughs> I tend to do that. I talk a lot about death and all the rest of it. He, he, he said he just had a case where somebody had died peacefully at home, and because they died peacefully at home, they had to have an inquest. Yeah? Because it's so unusual. You normally die in a traffic accident or you die in hospital, you're sick and whatever else, and you know, it's, it's a controlled environment. They die peacefully at home. Did something happen? <laughs> yeah, I mean, really, just how perverse it's become. Uh, the body's taken away as, as, as quickly as possible from the family, it's separated so, so, you don't, so you don't grieve, really. Um, the body's taken to the, the death professionals who make the body up to look like it's living. It's yeah. placed under pink lights in a funeral home so that you make a comment like, I've never seen them looking so good. <laughs> really? <laughs> Yeah? And then the body's disposed of. Yeah? And more often than not, increasingly, people do not even go to the crematorium service or anything. Rather, they come together a week or two later, a month later, without the person being there to celebrate their life. Yeah? It's a deeply ambiguous attitude towards death in all of this. Uh, and towards the body, for that matter. We, you know, we spend our whole life living for the body. And then as soon as we die, we say, well, the body's not really there. We, we live as hedonists and die as Platonists. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. okay but, but now to get back to the point, if... if Somebody better tweet that. <laughs> if it's true, and I could, spend a, I could spend hours more talking about this, if it's true that Christ shows us what it is to be God in the way he dies as a human being, if we don't see death today, and by death I mean the, you know, we, we hear about death, we see tragic death, and all that, but we, we have got no connection with that regular liturgy of death, which 
every culture has from the beginning of the world onwards until the modern West. If we don't see death today, we've got no chance of seeing God. Simple as that. All the other problems we talk about, secularism, consumerism, whatever else it might be, come, in my opinion, comes out of the fact that we no longer see death. Our horizons have become totally imminent in all of this. Yeah? It's about this life. It's about this body. It's about being all I can be. It's about, and you can give it a Christian veneer. You can say Christianity is an incarnational faith. My body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. I better exercise every day to make it as buff as it can possibly be. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it doesn't work. Yeah? Um, you know, I often, when talking at parishes and so on, we'll, we'll say, you know, how, how many hours a week do people here spend exercising and trying to live healthily and look after their bodies? <laughs> yeah? How many hours a week do you spend praying? You tell me who your God is. Yeah? So, I'm sorry, I wanted to start, yeah, talk, I I to start talking about death. I was death. about to drop the mic no, and walk away. <laughs> My children just start rolling their eyes when I start talking about death. Oh, it's um, sexy. So, so in terms of what we should do, uh, my students actually made me a t-shirt on it with, with, a, with a clash image from the London Calling, but they had a monk lifting up a cross, and on it was, take back death. Take back death. I think we need to take back death, just like we took back birth. Yeah, in the middle of the 20th century, a woman would be heavily medicated, separated from the husband, in a hospital, isolated as a medical condition in giving birth. Well, we've taken back birth, we can have home birth and do all sorts of things, families can be there and so on. We need to take back death. Yeah, we need to be witnesses to, to Christ's death and the life it brings. Yeah? And what's particularly relevant in all of this is that, you know, we're all subject to mortality. <laughs> You've got a captive audience in there. Yeah? Um, and finally, just add one final thing. This is going to become the biggest problem in the coming decades. Today, really, you cannot die, you have to be killed. Yeah, you have, you know, if you go into a hospital, keep your lives through all sorts of artificial machines and this, that and the other, the machine has to be switched off. Yeah? If we think we've got economic problems now, wait for another 20 or 30 years when we've got any number of people in their hundreds. Yeah? Um, the, the, the implication of all of that for how society will function is huge. So we better be, better be prepared for that. Well, I'm sure we have more questions. Unfortunately, our time is up. Before we go, Ken, uh, I, I just say thank you to uh, both of my friends here uh, who have come. And would you join me in saying thank you to our friends?